this podcast is on strategic narrative. The first part, we're going to talk about a special type of narrative called a foundational narrative. And then we're going to discuss just plain old narrative. As we discussed in the last podcast, arguably information in the meaningful form of narrative is a foundation of civilization. That is leaders convincing people to follow them and not to follow others. It predates armies and states and remains an imperative, central imperative of power. There are studies in business and social sciences such as archaeology, paleoanthropology, anthropology, neuroscience that suggests we can really know, directly lead, and deeply trust at most about 150 people. There is no biological mechanism that has evolved in us in order to directly manage more. But something interesting happened 70,000 years ago that is often dubbed the cognitive revolution historians call the dawn of human history. This is not the ability to communicate stories. We already had the ability to communicate stories. This is the ability to communicate abstract stories or narratives, stories about things that do not exist in nature. This was long after tools and weapons, medicine, and even early spoken language. So again, we, along with our cousin species like Homo erectus, like Neanderthals, we had the ability to tell literal stories. There's a saber-toothed tiger in those woods over there. But we did not have the ability until about 68,000 BC, um, until 68,000 BC, to tell abstract stories or narratives. These foundational narratives, the allowed people to unite beyond the clan, they allowed clans to be more united so strangers could bind together in what we call today social contracts. This is from where we get ideas like statecraft and power, warfare, defense, and strategy. These foundational narratives, they directly affect your subconscious, as I'll talk more about in a minute. According to neurobiologist Dr. Miguel Nicholas, he suggests that all the complexity of the human brain allows us to generate all the attributes that define the human condition. This includes, as he says, the entirety of our culture, history-making, and civilization. Foundational narratives fueled shared psychological orders allowing many people to believe in intangible ideas. Again, ideas that don't exist in nature, like nation and state, money, law, order, a shared history, even equal rights. These foundational narratives, sometimes called sacred values, sometimes called national mythologies or imagined communities, they allowed the first civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia, they allowed the first empires, and eventually, they allowed the state system today. At its most extreme, we see information warfare today still as governments strengthening their own foundational narratives while trying to influence adversaries or adversarial populations to abandon their foundational narratives. So strengthen your own, weaken the foundational narratives, weaken or try to collapse or at least erode the foundational narratives of an adversary. 
So again, before 68,000 BC, clan leaders could only lead about 150 people at any given point in time. But with these foundational narratives, we are able today, or certain governments are able today, to unite and lead sometimes tens of millions of citizens. Some scholars go so far as to say storytelling is not just something we do, but it's who we are, that according to Nick Giselto, a screenwriter in Hollywood, we're all born storytellers as part of our species. Certainly we seem biologically tuned to devour some types of abstract storytelling. There are a number of neuromodulators and hormones that activate during compelling abstract storytelling that increases our trust and our sympathy, heightens our memory and our visceral investment, not only in the story, not only in the characters, but in the storytellers themselves. Once you create foundational narratives, they must be defended. As Henry Kissinger in our reading this week suggests, when you're under assault, when you're under attack, you not only have to defend yourself physically, but often you find you have to defend the basic assumptions behind our foundational narratives. As Yuval Hariri, historian in Israel, suggests, Foundational narratives are inherently fragile. They're always in danger of collapse because they depend on myths. And myths vanish simply when people stop believing in them. This can happen or erode over a long period of time. This can also happen very dramatically and quickly, as we saw in November 9, 1989, when a number of people that worked for the GDR Stasi in East Berlin. A number of employees simply walked off their job, took off their uniforms, because, according to some historians, the foundational narratives in East Berlin and in Eastern Germany were relatively weak. So once the threat of force, the threat of violence, the threat of arrest, torture, and death was gone, there was nothing to unite people or to keep people at their post. So people, some people walked off their posts, took off their uniforms, and tried to resume some kind of normalcy. And this happened two months before the official dissolution of that government. So foundational narratives are inherently fragile. And this is why we see strategic leaders throughout the world trying to strengthen their foundational narratives, not only of their governments and their society and their nation and communities, but also in the services and certain agencies and bureaucracies of the government. They strengthen foundational narratives through what we call culture, education, rituals, rites, laws, and norms. When successful foundational narratives are internalized by your citizens and your soldiers to the point where they will reject and become physically repulsed by intellectual attacks that contradict the basic assumptions behind their foundational narratives, the basic values behind their foundational narratives. We find from a number of studies in neurobiology that a brain may act in a similar way to an intellectual attack on a person's foundational narratives or foundational principles as it does to a physical attack, that adrenaline, that rush of adrenaline, that fight or flight feeling. When successful, Foundational narratives affect the neural architecture of the brains of your citizens.
foundational narratives shape how we see and we sense the world. The brain does receive signals, but this is a very small, relatively small part of the equation. It does not receive signals in a vacuum. Instead, the brain is actively and predictively generating guesses to make sense of the world, to provide meaning and purpose, and simply to get to your computer or to your radio or your phone and to be able to listen to this podcast. And these guesses are predicated on our foundational understandings of the world, on our foundational narratives. Our minds actively generate the world. A quote from the book Subliminal, according to the other 95% of what goes on and what we see and how we make sense of the world, that is, goes on beyond our awareness and our subconscious and exerts a huge influence on our lives, beginning with making our lives possible or making our lives meaningful or making sense of our lives, I should say. He goes on to say, and I quote, even our most reasonable thoughts and actions mainly result from automatic unconscious processes to the point where values or foundational narratives that produce certain values seem visceral. They seem instinctive and obvious, independent of new information, oftentimes compared to gravity as an analogy. Now, foundational narratives can be undone. They can be unlearned but it takes immense amount of time, effort, and will. Will of the individual that wants to change. Examples are the include the Exit Sweden program. This is a Swedish prison system program that allows individuals, that is white supremacists and neo-Nazis that were charged with crimes and are doing time, it allows them to self-de-radicalize. And what they have found in the last two decades is it takes immense amounts of time, immense amounts of money and effort. It takes healthcare professionals, mental health professionals. It takes social workers. It takes community leaders. It takes business leaders. It takes family. It takes connections to a community. It takes immense amount of time. And mostly, most importantly, it takes the will and the effort of the individual that wants to change. And oh, by the way, we don't have long-term effects. So far, the program seems relatively successful. But does that mean it'll continue being successful in 10 or 20 years? Or will people uh, be drawn back into certain extremist communities? So thus far, we've talked about foundational narratives. Foundational narratives, they imprint on our subconscious. When I say subconscious, it's often the approximate target of many influence persuasion information campaigns. Certainly not all. Sometimes it's the uh, frontal area, or reasoning, or rational, if you will, side of our brain. Sometimes we want to target the limbic system, which is something we'll talk about later in the year. But oftentimes it's a target of information campaigns. And when I say subconscious, I mean literally the subconscious at an individual level and figuratively at the social level, having a supposed or so-called national, national subconscious. The subconscious has an outsized effect on our brains, on our logic, on our decisions and actions. I believe that there are three reasons why foundational narratives are important to us in our study of national security and strategy. One, foundational narratives describe information warfare at its most extreme. 
it defines much of power and warfare even today. That is, power is convincing people to follow them and to abandon others. In this context, looking at information warfare at its extreme, that is, attacking an adversary competitor's foundational narratives and shoring up your own, this is one way, one lens to analyze a great power competition. Certainly not the only, and certainly not necessarily the best at all times. Some historians suggest that Russia wants to dismantle democratic and constitutional republic values, or people's trust in democracy, in order to shore up Putin's centralized power, this idea of a savior in the Kremlin. Some historians suggest that Beijing may wish to change or at least affect the international order from a rules-based and laws-based system to a middle king-based system based off a peace according to the Communist Party of China. Some historians suggest, and scholars suggest, that Tehran wishes to export its revolution, that ISIS, the Taliban, Hezbollah, Hezbollah being backed by, of course, the government in Tehran, that they fight and die for their own foundational narratives, for their own view of how the world should be and how the world is. The second reason why foundational narratives are important is that this is oftentimes the pivot point or hook for many information, persuasion, and influence campaigns. It's a Trojan horse, a hook for how we gain traction for many of these information campaigns, especially when we want to play to the subconscious and to biases. Third, it is one lens, not the only lens, but one lens to help us understand the general international environment, or what is often known in strategy studies as the international context. That is to understand the motivations, the nature, the makeup, and the commitment of allies, competitors, and adversaries. Think, for example, of a, plan a staff planning officer in Tehran today, someone devoted to revolutionary ideas, someone that is deeply religious. Before he even enters the room to begin strategy planning, what are his biases? What are his foundational narratives? How does he see Iran's place in the world? How dedicated is he? Is he willing to die? Is he willing to kill? Is he willing to suffer? Is he willing to sacrifice the lives of innocence, the lives of his family? What are his priorities? Is he blinded to the supposed realities of international politics, looking through a distorted or partial lens? Does he see Iran primarily as literally surrounded by the enemy, that is, U.S. military with its presence in neighboring countries and at sea? In other words, does he seek survival first and foremost? Does he see himself as part of a rightful Persian empire that has been lost and must be regained, if not through conquest, if not through force, then through influence, through clandestine, proxy, and subversive warfare. Is this why he might recommend more influence, even more influence, in the Arab capitals of Sana'a, Baghdad, Damascus, and Beirut? Does he see his embedded and dedicated duty to export Iran's revolutionary ideals? Is this why Iran continues to fight by, with, and through forces in Yemen, and sometimes directly in Yemen? Does he see a Cold War or political regional power competition between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Every move to increase regional influence and breathing space 
every move to deny Saudi Arabia influence in regional alliances? Or does he see Iran as the rightful intellectual and spiritual home, along with some key cities and sites in Iraq, for a true religion that must prepare for the return of the Mahdi? Is this a spiritual quest for the soul of mankind to prepare for Armageddon, or is it all of the above? So thus far, we've talked about foundational narratives. Now I want to speak about just plain narratives. We call them strategic narratives when we use narratives or analyze narratives at a strategic level, globally, regionally, and with regards to strategy education, strategy planning, and strategy execution. So what is a narrative? And what's the difference between a narrative and a foundational narrative? So a foundational narrative is akin to a tree's root system, what is underground and unseen, but vital for the life and health of the tree. We need to take into account how those roots are watered, the richness of the soil, and how these affect the overall health of this root system. Now, narratives, just plain narratives, not foundational narratives, but narratives, sometimes called weaponized narratives in a time of warfare, sometimes called narratives as a tool in times of relative peace and stability, are akin to the branches of the tree, what is potentially observable. The stronger the root system, the, that is, the stronger the foundational narratives, the wider and stronger the branches, that is, the narratives may be able to grow. So, we've talked about foundational narratives. Once foundational narratives are strong, we get social constructs. Once social constructs exist and we have a governing system, that governing system can use narratives in pursuit of its national interest. So how does it use narratives? Well, narratives are the core. They are the key nugget. They are the center of every information, influence, and persuasion campaign. So what is the definition of narrative? Well, unfortunately, there are as many theories of narrative as there are theories, according to Stephen Corman. To make matters more complex, a narrative is as unique or to each village as it is to any other village. In other words, the very concept of what a narrative is changes from village to village and neighbor to neighborhood throughout the world. Only locals in an area are visceral or under, uh, understand at a visceral level what a narrative is, and it will be different throughout the world, with, even within a nation, within a state, even within a city. However, looking at the last 2,000 years, there are four common themes, and I want to allow these four common themes to be our starting point definition for us to discuss and debate. The important thing is that we consider these four themes that are common to many but not all definitions of narrative, but that when we hear speakers this fall that talk and use the word narrative is that we ask them what they mean because there are so many definitions of narrative just so we can understand where they're coming from. Not necessarily to debate them on the definition of narrative, but to understand what they're saying for clarity of communication. So the idea of narrative, the phenomenon narrative, has been, has divided academics, but has been a major scholarly debate, scholarly conflict over the last 2,000 years. And this involves all of the fine arts, 
all of the humanities, to include history, to include literature and philosophy, all of the social sciences, especially in the last three decades, and many of the sciences, medical science like psychiatry, theoretical science like theoretical physics and cosmology. So as a starting point definition, I'm going to discuss these four common themes to many definitions of narrative. One, narrative reflects identity. It reflects identity of a community, a nation, and a people. It can comprise deep-seated ideologies and belief systems, history, language, and even dialects. Two, narrative may offer people meaning, which may be especially important during times of instability, during times of crisis, during times of warfare. It allows a community to gauge meaning during upheavals and during uh, events that cause instability. Three, a strategic narrative may comprise one or more stories. Stories can be told, stories can be written, and, heard, and stories can be heard. Also, stories can be simply understood within a community. So, observable, but maybe it's difficult to observe. And if we are to study story, we must study the content of the story. The storyteller, the storytelling craft, the means of transmission, how the story is received, how the story is understood, how the story might affect somebody's mind, and how the story may affect somebody's behavior or not affect someone's behavior. The fourth theme is purpose. So in addition to reflecting identity, in addition to offering or providing meaning, in addition to comprising one or more stories, a narrative can be used with a purpose. As we've already said, the purpose is being the core to inform, to influence, or to persuade. Unfortunately, there is no winning formula for a winning narrative, whether you're developing a narrative, analyzing a narrative, amplifying a narrative, leveraging a narrative, enabling a narrative to naturally flourish. There's no formula. However, there are some common traits of what are considered by many as historically successful narratives that we will discuss in plenary. Thank you.